Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in about 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And my name's Brad. This is a topic that, Sarah, you and I have been really excited to do for a while now. For weeks, it seems. And honestly, the more we learn about this story, the more I picture this as like a HBO series. Oh, definitely. Because... It was supposed to be only one podcast, but now it's turned into a two-part podcast. Yes. So so what you're listening to right now is part one. This is going to be another two-part series, but this is a story that we've been really pumped to talk about for a while. In the 1850s, a Tennessean created a mercenary army, led them into Central America, and declared himself president of a foreign nation. He did this twice before becoming a martyr to the Confederate cause in the months before secession. His name was William Walker. In the next two episodes, we're going to explore William Walker's life, his death, and his political legacy. We have to begin with the concept of manifest destiny. What really is manifest destiny, Brad? So it's two words. Manifest, which means something that is easily understood or recognized by the mind. In other words, obvious or clear. And destiny, which is the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person or thing in the future. So manifest destiny means a future event accepted as inevitable. In the 19th century, many Americans believe that it is our manifest destiny to expand American beliefs and cultures throughout the Americas. That's Central and South America too. And that because of the inherent greatness of the American culture, this was both justified and inevitable. And kind of understanding this concept is really important to understanding the character of William Walker. William Walker had a, a pretty simple beginning. He was born on May 8th, 1824 in Nashville, Tennessee. And in fact, the other day I was downtown Nashville and there is a, mark, a historic marker for William Walker. His birthplace? I don't know if it's birth. I think it's just his, his political legacy. Oh, I'm going to have to go down there and check it out. Yeah. His father was a banker in Scotland, a wealthy banker, and had immigrated to the United States just a few years before. William Walker was said to have had a roving disposition when he was a kid. He is quoted to being shy and tactern, aesthetic and sandy-haired and freckled, five feet, five inches tall and weighing less than 120 pounds. His only distinctive feature was a pair of luminous, transfixing gray-green eyes. And that quote was from Battle Cry of Freedom which was by James McPherson, and it's probably the, many many would consider it the greatest single volume on the Civil War. And it's just interesting that a book that covered that many topics chose to dedicate maybe five pages to this Nashvilleian William Walker. He did have a soft side when he was a child. His mother was bedridden, and he would spend hours reading to her. And one source said that a family friend described William Walker as very intelligent and as refined in his feelings as a girl. And he was intelligent. He graduated summa cum laude from the University of Nashville at the age of 14. And the University of Nashville has now been absorbed into Vanderbilt University. In many ways, he was a child prodigy, but he was unable to settle on one career path. He briefly considered a career in the ministry, then decided on medicine. He trained as a physician in Paris and Edinburgh. He eventually gets a degree in Pennsylvania in 1843, but while he was traveling in Europe, he he considers a career in politics. Yeah, one quote that he said to a friend was this, often reappears to me in my waking dreams, leaving me uncertain whether it be an angel of light or an angel of darkness. Yeah, referring to his political ambitions, he doesn't know if it's good or evil, and we'll leave it up to you, the listener, to decide. He then moved to New Orleans in 1845, where he became a lawyer and an editor of a newspaper called The Crescent. 
and it's kind of a brief aside, the person Walker replaced as editor was famous American poet Walt Whitman, who, according to the Library of Congress, was fired from the Crescent because of his anti-slavery beliefs. And while Walker was in New Orleans, he met a woman from a high-profile family named Ellen Martin, who was both deaf and mute. So Walker learned sign language to communicate with her, and the two quickly became engaged. There's a couple of these things from his youth that makes me think like, oh, he's kind of a sweetheart. But we know where the story's going. <laughs> yes. And by age 25, William Walker has two college degrees, was trained as both a physician and a lawyer, co-owner of a newspaper, engaged to a woman from a respected family, and had traveled the world. Pretty sad compared to my 25 years so I've been around. <laughs> but it seemed as if Walker's days of searching for meaning and adventure were behind him, and he was ready to settle down and start a family. But then tragedy struck. In 1850... Ellen, his fiancée, unexpectedly died from yellow fever, which prompted William to hit the road yet again. And in 1850, there was one more place that had more promise of adventure and fortune than any other, and that place was California. Yeah, California was a brand new state, and this land had recently been gained from Mexico as a result of the Mexican-American War, which took place from 1846 to 1848. In addition to California, this land included most of what would today be Utah, Nevada, and Arizona. There was a lot of conversations about what should be done with this land. If you remember when we started talking about Manifest Destiny, that sentiment was older, but the phrase itself originated from journalist John L. O'Sullivan in 1845 in reference to the land that would or could be acquired from Mexico. And about 300,000 people moved to this new territory in search of this manifest destiny and in search of gold. Yeah. Gold was discovered in California, which prompted this huge flood of people to move across the country. And so that's exactly what William Walker does. The same year his fiance dies in 1850, he makes the journey from Louisiana to California. And when he gets to California at first, he seems to be pretty much doing what he did in New Orleans. He found a job as a newspaper editor for the San Francisco Daily Herald. And he grew kind of rambunctious, too, in his San Franciscan life, participating in at least three duels. Yeah, it's easy to imagine him having just lost his fiance in this new area, and he gets into a lot of trouble while he's there. One of the duels he lost, he, he writes articles in the newspaper blaming the fact that he lost because he was using a gun he was unfamiliar with, and it yes. didn't go off. It's not yeah. my fault. He was injured, and the other guy wasn't shot at all. While he was living in California, Walker became fascinated with the filibuster movement. The word filibuster derives from piracy. It refers to pirates as freebooters or filibusteros, but in general, it refers to someone who takes or takes over something. And most of us are familiar with this kind of modern usage where, you know, a member or two of Congress will take over the floor and give a long, drawn-out speech or debate to kind of prevent something from happening. But in Walker's time, the word had a completely different meaning. It applied to American citizens who operated without permission from the federal government and traveled to Central America to instigate or to capitalize on political unrest. Walker would have been very familiar with these expeditions. At least two took place unsuccessfully immediately after he moved to California. But these were hugely popular. I mean, th these things you would read about in the newspaper and many Americans enjoyed reading about these filibustering campaigns, seeing them as thrilling and adventurous. The filibuster movement was particularly appealing to those 49ers, the people who had moved to California in search of gold, who had failed, who had moved to strike it rich and then not achieving that. Reading about these in the newspaper gave them a sense of adventure. 
the issue other than, you know, the obvious issue that you are taking land from people who have been living there for who knows how long, just because you believe in the inherent greatness of your own culture, is that they were illegal. (laughs) Which is a pretty big issue in and of itself. Yes. As many of these endeavors were in violation of the Neutrality Act of 1794, which basically said it's illegal for any American citizen to wage war against a peaceful foreign nation. Which might sound odd because the United States had just taken a lot of land from Mexico as a result of the Mexican-American War, but the government was hesitant to let let citizens themselves get the United States into another war without permission. Walker doesn't have those qualms, and shortly after moving to California, he decides to attempt a filibuster of his own. Walker's immediate goal was to take over two Mexican states. The first would be Baja, California, which extends south from the U.S. state of California and is where Tijuana is located, and Sonora, which is just south of and shares a border with primarily Arizona. And Walker sought a grant from the federal government of Mexico to create a colony, which he claimed would protect U.S. soil from Indian raids. That claim probably led to Mexico refusing to give him that grant. Yeah, he tries to do it legally at first, saying, "We we want some land so that we can protect California from Native Americans in Mexico's like, no, we're not doing that. And after he's denied, he begins recruiting, mostly people from Kentucky and Tennessee, to establish an independent buffer colony, the Republic of Sonora. He funded his project by selling scripts or vouchers, which were redeemable to lands of Sonora. So if you fund my project, you can get land once we successfully take over portions of Mexico. Walker was able to obtain a boat, which was a brig named Arrow, And quite a large number of men volunteered to go with him. But San Francisco authorities had been warned to halt any filibustering attempts. And so Arrow was seized and many of the men were arrested. But this doesn't stop Walker. On October 15, 1853, he leads an expedition of 45 men on a much smaller schooner, the Caroline, to the Mexican state of Baja, California. One historian wrote about Walker that, Although lacking military experience, he now called himself Colonel Walker, and he dubbed his ragtag group the first independent battalion of the Republic of Sonora. Such a grand name for 45 men. Yeah, he, he kind of has delusions of grandeur, but he's, he's really going for it. And they are a little bit successful at first. They are able to quickly seize the town of La Paz, capturing the governor in the process, and Walker immediately sets himself up as the president of the Republic of Lower California. Walker then issues a few declarations upon declaring himself president. He says a few things. The first, the Republic of Lower California is hereby free, which is an interesting thing to say to a bunch of people that you just took over, but is hereby free, sovereign, and independent, and all allegiance to the Republic of Mexico is forever renounced. The second declaration was all duties, whether exports or imports, are hereby abolished. And the third is from and after this date, the civil code and code of practice of the state of Louisiana shall be the rule of decision and the law of the land in all the courts of the Republic to be hereafter organized. So why Louisiana? Why not California? They left from California. Why not say California law uh, takes precedent in this place and instead Louisiana? And the answer is simple. Slavery was legal in Louisiana. What makes this even worse is that Mexico had struggled with the issue of slavery for centuries. In fact, the first African slaves were present in the area that would become Mexico as early as the 1520s. But after nearly 300 years, slavery was abolished in Mexico in the late 1820s. And Walker's just like, we're bringing it back. 
No, so 30 years being in a non-slave country, now... Walker just decides to reverse it. So what defense did Walker have for these actions? He said, why should Americans limit their republic to just the United States? The Mexican government has failed in its duties to lower California. Its geographical position makes it hard to communicate with the rest of Mexico. And then he says, its moral and social ties to Mexico are weak. And he calls Mexico the declining Mexico. So he has now taken over at least one city and set up a new government. I want to enforce, I'm doing air quotes around the word government. Right. But Walker desperately needed support. His small group of 45 guys aren't really going to be able to hold much for long. And so hoping to drum up public favor in the United States, on November 30th, 1853, Walker wrote that Mexico would forever remain wild, half-savage, and uncultivated, covered with an indolent and half-civilized people, desirous of keeping all foreigners from entering the limits of the state, when the people of a territory fail almost entirely to develop the resources nature has placed at their command, the interests of civilization require others to go in and possess the land. They cannot, nor should they, be allowed to play the dog in the manger and keep others from possessing what they have failed to occupy and appropriate. That's harsh. It's harsh and gross. And, well, these exploits, they become pretty widespread publicly across the United States. While several hundred American adventurers do join his cause that December, the federal government never gave Walker the support he desperately needed. And he also faced fierce opposition in Mexico. Imagine if you had this group of a few dozen foreigners just come in and start taking over your cities. You'd be pretty upset about it. And a local rancher whose name was Antonio Melandres had raised troops from local neighborhoods and combined his forces with the Mexican military, who was led by who? Santana. And together they were able to force Walker's men to move their base of operations at least three times. So what do you do when you're barely able to exert control over one foreign state? Well, you attempt to take over another. <laughs> yeah. So in 1845, Walker declared the annexation of the neighboring Mexican state of Sonora. So we can't control what we're currently in, but now we're declaring that we've taken over the next state as well. This is kind of speculation on our part, but we kind of have to assume that he figured if he could convince the federal government that his plan was going well, he could maybe coerce them into supporting him. Walker's goal in the long run, it appears it was to take over all of Mexico. Now, was he personally hoping to have the land he conquered admitted into the Union as slave states, or was he simply wanting to take over a foreign nation and set himself up as the ruler? In truth, we don't know. All we know is what he did. Over the next few months, running low on supplies and unsupported by the U.S. government, Walker's men were slowly worn down by forces commanded by Melendrez. His final battle with Mexican armed forces took place in Tijuana on May 8, 1854. Oh, just realize that. That's his birthday. Yeah, that's his, <laughs> that's his uh, 30th birthday, I believe. <laughs> the U.S. Army was present, but they were acting as private citizens. They told the Mexican government they would not interfere if they wanted to attack. And plus, there were spectators who came all the way from San Diego to see you know, what would happen in the battle. Yeah, imagine that Walker's men have been chased up through Mexico, towards Tijuana, up to the border. And here's all these men from, from the United States, all these U.S. Army men. And Walker was probably thinking, oh, they've come to rescue me. And the U.S. Army is just like, um, Mexican forces, you can do what you want to those guys. They're not with us. Yeah, we're just, we're just here to watch, you know, with the hundreds of other spectators. 
So the Mexicans advanced towards Walker's forces, but didn't shoot. And eventually Walker and his men arrived at the border, clothing in tatters, and Walker himself wearing only one boot. And they gave themselves up as prisoners to the U.S. Army. 34 people, including Walker, surrendered. And in his document of surrender, Walker still referred to himself as the President of the Republic of Sonora. Yeah, clothes falling to pieces, one shoe on your feet, and you're declaring, you're still like, yeah, I'm still the President. And in total, his expedition to Mexico lasted roughly seven months. William Walker and his companions were returned to California, and they were tried for violation of the Neutrality Act. But far from being looked at as a villain who nearly caused the United States to enter into another war with Mexico, Walker was considered a hero by many, Southerners in particular. And he was promptly acquitted of all charges after the jury deliberated for only eight minutes. And what did this expedition even accomplish. In the mix of Walker's attempts to annex portions of Mexico, the Mexican government agreed to the Gadsden Purchase, in which they sold portions of what would become Arizona and New Mexico to the United States. Historian David Eisenberg stated that Walker's invasion shook the Mexican government, which feared he was backed by the United States of America, and they hastily signed the Gadsden Purchase Treaty on December 31st, 1853. So that's during Walker's expedition. Walker, although he was a total failure, had in, in many ways embodied the 19th century spirit of America's manifest destiny to spread American ideals, culture, and institutions like slavery across the continent. Although he failed in his goals, he was greeted as a hero upon returning to the United States, and newspapers across the country were referred to him simply as the filibuster. So what would a 30-year-old failed dictator do upon returning home and finding himself a folk hero? Would he retire to a life of tranquility? Would he run for office? Would he write a book? No. For Walker, his adventures in Mexico were just a test run for a much larger, more drawn-out attempt to take control of the war-torn Central American country of Nicaragua. This is the end of part one. In part two, we will be covering Walker's expedition to Nicaragua. And we're also going to be getting into how what he does coincides with American politics and the push towards civil war. So make sure you tune in in two weeks. If you listen on the website, that's wonderful. We're, we're glad that you do that. But I've found that the easiest way to stay up with what we're doing is to subscribe via whatever podcast app you find the most convenient. The, most people listen through the Apple Podcast app. You can listen to a variety of others, Downcast, Overcast, uh, Spotify, or even on Spotify. Mm -hmm. So whatever service is easiest, if you subscribe, that's the best way. The episodes will be downloaded to your phone free of charge every two weeks. Come visit the site. I'd love it if you come out and take a tour at Carter House or Cardenton. On November 30th, we're going to have our 154th anniversary of the Battle of Franklin. And next week, Tuesday, you'll be able to hear a little podcast, a mini episode almost, of why commemorating this anniversary is important in Tennessee history and really American history. And then on, on Friday, November 30th, come out to Cardenton at 4 o'clock. There is going to be a ceremony. And then following that is an illumination of 10,000 luminaries commemorating the soldiers who fought and died in the battle. And you can come out for a free house uh, walkthrough of Carter House in Carnton that evening as well. If you want to support this show, please check out our t-shirts, which are available at store.boft.org. They're really cool. They're soft. They're cool looking. And if you pick up one of those 10 and 20 t-shirts, we also recommend 
many of the different great books that we have. I'll recommend Battle Cry of Freedom since we mentioned it in this episode. It's a really good single volume of the entire war. Pick that up as well. Follow Carter House and Carnson on Facebook. And if you want to keep up with what we're doing here is 10 and 20, follow 10 and 20 podcast on Instagram. That is T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast. And we'll post some photos. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week for a bonus episode.